The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Last week we did a survey, kind of an overview of the whole Old Testament. This week, before we start with individual books, we want to do a survey of the Pentateuch. Uh, And again, I think I mentioned this last week, but if you've never done the exercise of just sitting down and skimming through from Genesis to Deuteronomy, at least skimming through, if you want to read it more closely, that's great too. Or even if you have a Bible that shows the chapter titles or kind of the, the main titles of what's happening, that's a good exercise. Genesis through Deuteronomy is one story, uh, and it's the foundation of the rest of Scripture. So that's what we're going to do this week, survey the Pentateuch. A lot of things that we're going to talk about you've seen before or heard before, so it'll be review in that sense. Next week, we'll actually start with the book of Genesis. So this is part of what we covered last week, and I, I show it again just so you see where the Pentateuch fits within the whole canon of the Old Testament. It is the foundation, the first five books, known as the Pentateuch, sometimes called the Law, the books of Moses. It's the foundation not only for the Old Testament, but really for the entirety of the Bible. Uh, so much of the doctrine uh, the various theological doctrines, systematic theology doctrines that we cover in the Scripture actually are in Genesis by itself. But the Pentateuch certainly is the foundation. And it, its major theme is the, the formation, the birth of the nation of Israel. Um, they're being carried through, being given the law, entering into the covenant with God, and then up through Deuteronomy, just on the brink of entering the promised land that God had given them. Next is the historical books, Joshua through Esther. They continued that story of the development, ascent, particularly under Solomon, decline after the division of the kingdom, exile, and subsequently the partial restoration of the nation of Israel. And then what we have, what we commonly call the wisdom literature, that's probably not the best way to label these books, uh, the poetry section or poetical literature is really a more appropriate term if you're considering all of them. Certainly, Job, uh, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes are wisdom books, three of the five. Psalms has some wisdom psalms within it, but a lot of it is not wisdom literature. And then Song of Solomon is kind of in a class of its own. But uh, the dominant section of these poetical books is wisdom literature. And you think through the different types of literature. For example, Proverbs deals with wisdom in very black and white categories. Raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Well, that's not an ironclad guarantee, uh, but it is a maxim. It is a general truth that often functions that way. Job and Ecclesiastes deals with the exceptions to those maxims. Job was a righteous man greatly blessed by God, had not done anything, quote-unquote, to deserve what happened to him, but Satan came and asked that he be able to tempt Job, again, recognizing the sovereignty of God even in doing that. And, and Job deals with this idea of what about the exceptions? What about when what happens, not just in Job's life, but in ours as well, doesn't seem to follow the pattern of God blessing the righteous and punishing the wicked. Job is a great book. I love the book of Job, and we'll survey it, and I hope it'll motivate you to read through that book too. 
Ecclesiastes we've taught before in our church. It's another really uh, outstanding book. It's you know it's got a definite theme and question that Solomon is seeking to answer, and he's leading us through that the answer to that question in his book. And the question is, this is straight out of chapter one: What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? I mean, that's a question that all mankind ask at one time or another. And he talks about the vanity of life under the sun and the fact that because of the curse, so many things don't work out the way that we want to and we don't get the satisfaction that we're looking for. But his conclusion is very orthodox. It really fits with the same conclusion in both Job and the book of Proverbs. The answer, what all has been said is done, is to fear God and keep his commandments. The Psalms are really Israel's songbook. Uh, they're a book that praises and worships God and extols his character and his plan, not only for Israel, but also for the nations. And then Song of Solomon is, like I said, a category all of its own. There's various ways that people through time, through church history, have interpreted that song. I think if you take it at face value, it's a celebration of God's gift of marriage and, and marital love. We'll go into that in more detail when we get there. And then finally, the last major section are the prophets, is the prophets. What do the prophets do? They confront Israel and Judah with their sin. They call them back to covenant loyalty, the covenant that was originally made at Sinai. They warn the nation of a coming day of the Lord, uh, which we also heard about this morning. And they also anticipate, despite Israel's sin, despite their long history of unfaithfulness, despite the fact that they even are partially restored in past, in the past, there's a future restoration of Israel that is tied all the way back to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30, where they're given a new heart. Their hearts are circumcised, and they truly love the Lord their God with all their heart and keep His commandments. We have this division between the prophets only based on the size of the books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations is often associated with Jeremiah. It's not the same as some of the other prophets. Uh, Ezekiel and Daniel are all larger books. And then you have, we don't like the term minor prophets. I threw it out there because I think Bedware uses it, and it's one that you've heard before. But the 12, it's really, uh, it's one book. These prophets are individually small enough to be written on one scroll. And Matt will teach that section. He's done a lot of work on the 12 and really teaches it in such a way that you see that it's one book, despite it being individual authors and each book having some of its their own themes. It's also one work, and, and he'll help us see that better. Okay, so let's just walk through the storyline of the Pentateuch. I'll ask you some questions along the way as we do this. We start with the book of Genesis. Uh, the first 11 chapters of the Bible cover just over 2,000-year period. And what are the four major events of those first 11 chapters? Creation, fall of man, the flood, Tower of Babel. So... 
The creation obviously demonstrates the power of God. He made everything that he made in six days and saw that it was all good. With man's fall, that radically changed everything. It brought the curse of sin. And that uh, sinful nature of man only got worse and worse over time to the point where man's thoughts were only evil continually. That brought the judgment of the flood. Noah his family were spared, and the earth was repopulated after they came off the ark. But even then, man continued to rebel. They weren't, mankind was not doing what God wanted them, him to do. So in order to make him scatter and fill the earth and subdue it that way, he confused the languages at the Tower of Babel. Now, all of this serves as a prelude and kind of a, a background for what God's going to do next. And what does he do in Genesis 12? Say again. He calls Abram. Abram is going to be the father of the nation of Israel. He's going to be, uh, and the nation of Israel is going to be the means by which God redeems the world. Now, he's going to redeem Israel and the nations, but he also subsequently, or in the course of time, redeems the church. That's not revealed in the Old Testament, but after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, it becomes clear. So, Chapters 12 through 50 of the book of Genesis are summarized or all about four key persons. Four events in the first 11 chapters. Who are the four key persons? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and is it Joseph? Joseph. So the original promises are given to Abraham in chapter 12. It's made into a covenant in chapter 15. Circumcision is added in chapter 17. And then that covenant is affirmed to both Isaac and Jacob, and the Abrahamic covenant as a theme dominates Genesis 12 through 50. Now when we get to the end of Genesis, we have the record of both Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, his death and the death of Joseph. We have about 70 persons that have been brought down into Egypt as a result of Joseph being raised in power there. And it's while they're in Egypt that they're going to be multiplied and uh, made into a great nation. So that brings us to the book of Exodus. First 13 chapters are about God's work, both in multiplying the nation and then delivering them through the ten plagues, uh, the last of those plagues being the death of the firstborn. 14 through 18 describes their journey from the land of Goshen within Egypt where God had multiplied them. And keep in mind the wisdom of God in doing it this way. Uh, the nation of Israel grew up in the womb of Egypt. They were protected by the strongest country on the earth at that time. And over the course of that time, they grew so rapidly, just as God had promised Abraham that they would, that they became a threat to Egypt themselves. That's why they enslaved them with hard bondage. 14 to 18 is the journey from Egypt down to Sinai, and it's at, at Sinai where God enters into covenant with the nation. And you remember the preamble to that covenant really summarizes it well. Chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, the Lord says to Israel, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And God has concern for all the nations. Israel was just going to be the vehicle by which he redeemed those nations. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation, not just a kingdom with priests, although they had that, a kingdom of priests in the sense of mediating the true God to the other nations. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. 19 through 25 is the giving uh, and the spelling out of the covenant between God and Israel. 25 through 31, Moses receives instructions for the tabernacle. We'll look at a picture of it in just a little bit. And the anointing of a priest. And then we have the golden calf incident, which really is a harbinger of things to come, right? Uh, they don't even get out of um, Sinai. And they've already committed idolatry, become unfaithful, not kept covenant with God. But God doesn't forsake them at that point. Uh, they go on to build the tabernacle, and that's described in pretty significant detail in chapters 35 to 40. Okay? What, what's the next book? Leviticus. And what is Leviticus all about? And that, it's what? Okay, the law. We had the law give it spelled out in the Mosaic Covenant, but what more specifically does Leviticus deal with as a subset of the law, Kathleen? Priesthood, the duties of the Levites. Remember, the, the priests are actually a subgroup of the Levites, and the Levites were charged with caring for the tabernacle, transporting it from location to location. Is there anything else that stands out as you think about the book of Leviticus? Worship. Worship. Holiness. Uh, the offerings that are spelled out in the first seven chapters and the different kinds of offerings that there are, big part of their worship system. Leviticus 26 mirrors, or it's actually the first chapter where it talks about and anticipates that Israel is not going to be faithful and there's promises of blessings if they are, curses if they're not, exile if they're not, but still ultimate restoration. Okay, so 1 through 7 deals with all the various offerings and how they were to be brought. 8 through 10 deals with the consecration and duties of the priest. 11 through 22, as we talked about, deals with purity, dealing with things like leprosy, making atonement, uh, sanctification. 20 through 25 deals with the seven feasts that the Lord gave Israel to celebrate. Now, what was the purpose of the feast? Isaiah? To like remember. And what exactly? Certainly to remember. How he had like, God had preserved them. Okay. So it's really kind of a dual purpose to the feast. One, it was to remember the things that God had done for them through their history. He brought them out of Egypt at Passover. Unleavened bread reminded them of the haste with which they left Egypt. Um, feast of Booths reminded them of the way that they were in Booths as they traveled through the wilderness. So there's definitely a theological significance to each one of the feasts. What else, though? There's another kind of purpose or association that the feasts have. That's when they were to gather together and corporately worship every time. Okay, so that would tie in again with the theological purpose of what God had done for them as a people. I'm looking for something else, though. Is that also like a witness to the nation? It would be, Yes. When you think about first fruits, what would that be tied to? The agricultural cycle. I mean, that's the way that this nation is making its living or able to live off the land, both by crops and by animals. And the feasts were tied to the, the agricultural cycle 
and the year that God had given them as part of their calendar. We'll look at that more in detail when we get there. As we said, 26 and 27 spells out blessings and curses as well as vows and valuations. And that brings us to the book of Numbers. So, yes. Uh -huh. So the first would be uh, to remember the things that God had done for them in their history. The second would be uh, tied to the agricultural calendar, which was also part of the, a significant part of the Mosaic Covenant, right? God promised physical land blessings, which included crop and animal productivity, and the feast <clears throat> celebrated that or anticipated that. You know, the, the Feast of First Fruits, on the one hand, they waved this first fruits of the harvest in recognition that God is the one that had provided it, had provided the necessary rain for their crops to flourish, and it was in anticipation of a greater harvest to come. So, in, in one word, theology and agriculture, agricultural productivity. All right, so we're going to look at a map here in a little bit that shows kind of the placement of each one of these uh, things that we're walking through. Exodus obviously starts in Egypt and ends up uh, down <clears throat> in Sinai. Where's Leviticus set? Yes, it's, it's another 30 days at Sinai. So when they finish what they do in the book of Leviticus, we get to the book of Numbers. And, and how would you summarize that book? What is the book of Numbers all about? <coughs> Israel's wilderness wanderings. And it's a pretty easy book to divide up into three major sections. The first 12 chapters deal with the nation's movement. You know, they get organized as to where they're going to be around the tabernacle. They get all counted up, and then they set out. And the first 12 chapters describe their journey from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. 13 through 19 uh, is their, really a record of their 40 years, or 38 plus at this point, of wandering in the wilderness because they failed to believe God. You remember the, they had grumbled from the time that they set out from Sinai, but there was one event that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Does anybody know what that is? That's right. They are in Kadesh Barnea. They send 12 spies up into the land, and they come back and say, yep, it's as great a land as we thought it, as God told us it would be. But the people are giants, and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way we can take this land. And there were only two exceptions to that report, and that was Joshua and Caleb, and they believed. But everybody else and their families... Uh, had to wander in the wilderness until that generation died out um, uh, because of their lack of faith. So then the last section is from Kadesh Barnea up to the plains of Moab. And you'll remember Moab is where the nation ends up uh, as Moses proclaims the law again in the book of Deuteronomy uh, just before he dies and just before the nation enters into the promised land. Finally, we have the book of Deuteronomy itself. Uh, the first four chapters are a review from, of what took place from Sinai to Moab. 5 through 26 is a reiteration of the law, exposition of the law. It's 
Moses one last shot for this new generation to hear the law, hear the covenant, and to recognize the importance of that covenant. And Moses is charging them to be faithful to it before they enter the promised land. 27 through 30 is a very important section of Deuteronomy. Again, it spells out the blessings of obedience to the law, the curses of disobedience. 31 through 34 are um, the final ministry of Moses. Remember, uh, Deuteronomy 32, Moses teaches the people a song, and it's a song that tells them that they're going to fail, and yet God's not going to forsake them. Okay, so I hope this slide will help you. I think the more you, the more familiar you get with the Pentateuch and even with these five books individually, if you can kind of get a framework for each one, that helps you just think through the individual books and the Pentateuch as a whole. So this is a slide that we've shown before, and it's straight out of Ben Ware's book. I made a few uh, modifications to it. Uh, so the top part, shows the covenants, and you're very familiar with those because we've done those recently. You'll notice that four of the six covenants that God <coughs> makes with the nation of Israel happen in the first five books in the Pentateuch. That would be the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which was the means by which the promises of the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled. I I, I don't know what Ben Ware, I can't remember what he has there, but I made a new block and called it, the, I think he calls it the Palestinian covenant. And some people do see a separate land covenant in Deuteronomy 29. I don't buy that one. So I, I think Deuteronomy is covenant renewal with the whole nation. We have the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Now, if you look at the bottom part, it kind of gives the different sections that, uh, in the blue part on the top of the bottom, he gives the different phases that the nation of Israel goes through, and then the key individuals underneath that. So you have formation of Israel under the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also Moses and Joshua. Then you move to a theocracy where they, they didn't have a king. They didn't need a king, right, because God was their king. And they did have priests. They ended up having judges that God raised up because they needed somebody to get them out of a mess. Now, the reason I made that block for priests and judges is that I think it was just a typo, but Benware has the same guys listed under the theocracy, patriarchs, Moses, and Joshua. I don't think that's what he meant to put in there. They moved from a theocracy where God is king to a true monarchy, well, a human monarchy, where uh, God's appointed representative was king, and those are all the kings there. Then you have the period of the exile, with the prophets ministering both before, during, and after that exile, doing what we talked about earlier that they were doing. You have a partial restoration of the nation. We call it partial because they're never uh, fully restored to the land under the conditions that the prophets prophesied. We're still looking for that future restoration in the future. Now, you'll notice that Benware uh, continues all the covenants except for the Mosaic Covenant. And he says, that one stops. It's done away with at the cross. And I understand that. I understand why he and others do that, because the law is not in force for the church. And that's the next sec section down there. It's the church built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. I still think it's more accurate to see 
the Mosaic Covenant as a continuing is continuing into the Millennial Kingdom because of the nature of that kingdom, because the law shows up there, because you have priests again and a te temple again, and you have all those things that were originally laid out in the first five books of Moses. So I still agree with most of what Ben Ware has. I just make those modifications because I think they're a little bit more accurate. Okay. Yes? The law is not applicable to the church, though. That's right. We're kind of like a separate entity. We're not made up of one kingdom, but many nations. That's right. Um, exactly. The church is very distinct from the nation of Israel. It's maintained distinctiveness through the New Testament period, and it's still, still very much distinctive today. And it was decided in Acts 15. And again, you could see why that was an issue, right? Because all of a sudden you've got these Gentiles that are embracing Israel's Messiah. Certainly in the Old Testament, they came under the law too. But what was decided was that the church was not under the law. And that's going to be developed further. It's going to be argued in the book of Galatians that Matt's going to teach for us in the near future here. And in other places. So... The law has always been for Israel. The new covenant is a new enablement for the nation of Israel to keep the law in a way that they haven't before. And we'll be there in the millennial kingdom as the church, but we'll be in glorified bodies, not having to bring sacrifices the way that the law prescribes and really ruling and reigning with Christ during that period of time. Andre. I always have trouble with this, <clears throat> that we're not under the law situation. Now, notwithstanding the 600 and some odd laws that they created afterwards, just coming back to the basic Ten Commandments, Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, obey my commandments. So even though we're not saved by the law, once we are saved, we're really supposed to live by the principles of that law. So we have a different law, right? We have the law of Christ. The New Testament does speak of us being under. But again, what Paul is dealing with is the Mosaic law code. That's what he's arguing against when he's, because that's what the Pharisees wanted the Gentiles to come under, was the Mosaic law code, which is, the Ten Commandments is the summary of that, but there's a lot more to the law than that. And it's all spelled out both in 19 through 24 of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. We don't keep any of that. But Jesus said, though, under, he summarized the Ten Commandments under two. That's right. The greatest commandment, and then yeah. love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And so... Certainly supposed, we do that. We were supposed to do, supposed to do that. That's yeah. not going to make us saved or unsaved, but we're supposed to be doing those things. We, we do do those two things, and we have <clears> to <throat> acknowledge that a lot of what's taught in the Mosaic Law is taught in the New Testament as well. But we're talking about being under the law as a rule of life which Israel very much was. You know, we, there's an awful lot of the law that we don't do, right? We don't bring sacrifices. We don't celebrate the feast. Uh, we're not in the land of Israel. So, yes, the spirit of the law, as far as loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, uh, the New Testament writers can bring that up and say, this is, this is really the summary of the law. We are responsible for that but it's not the same as being under the law the way that Israel was. So basically, even that love your neighbor as yourself became love as I have loved you. So that also did a little bit of grace, actually. And 
the law was like an outward thing that you did in faith. You had all these things you did to show your faith. It was your rule of life. But now we have a stricter code. Even even if we think something, but we don't put it into action, it's still held accountable before God. So that's an interesting point that you make. I would argue that even in the Old Testament, that strict code was there. The law was given to condition the heart. And so when Christ says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. I say to you, even if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty. I think the Old Testament saying, if you hate yeah, it is... So what had happened then is like the Pharisees had turned it all outward. That's right. In Jesus' day. That's he right. Was turning it back to the original... Exactly. Idea. That's right. Now we do, again, uh, you know, Israel has this body of law that they're associated with, and we have the New Testament teaching of the apostles that we're responsible for. So I'm not saying that we're free to do whatever we want to. I'm just saying we're under a different set of teaching than the nation of Israel was. Good, good questions, observations. All right, let's look at some geography here. First, starting with Abraham. Where was Abraham, say, in Genesis chapter 11? Well, I'm trying to think of a good way to ask this question. Where were Abraham's beginnings? Exactly. Ur the Chaldeans. And you can see it. Let me get my laser pointer out here. Right here. Ur the Chaldeans. Chaldeans being another name for Babylonians. Now I want us to read some sections here that describe Abram's journeys from that point to where he ends up. We're going to start in chapter 11, um, beginning verse 27. Anybody remember Abram's father? Say it, you know it. Terah, good. These are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. So Lot and Abram were nephews, or cousins, rather. I didn't say that right. Lot is the nephew of Abram. And Haran, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the, na the, the father of Milcah and Issachah. And Sarah was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran, and settled there. So they're starting out down there at Ur with the goal of ultimately getting to the land of Canaan, according to Genesis 11. They travel up the uh, Euphrates River Valley there. They enter the city of Haran and settle there. <coughs> Let's see what happens next. Um, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And you shall, all, 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the Oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanites were then in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Take your descendants, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord uh, who had appeared to him. And this is down, you, I don't know if you can see Shechem on that map, but that's kind of where the red line stops. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. The Negev is the southern part of Israel, very desert area. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So he not only goes down through the Negev, but he goes all the way down to Egypt in search of food. And you can see in the process that he's traversed the length of the nation of Israel, the, what would be the nation of Israel's land, the land of Palestine. So we have some things that we won't go into detail, things that happened down in Egypt, and then we pick it up in the first four verses of chapter 13. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He's backtracking now. He and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, that is back to the place where he had started that last journey, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So that just gives you a little bit of geographic feel for the, all the land that Abram traversed as God was making these promises to him and, and confirming his covenant with him. So now let's look at the journey of Israel. And again, this is just to get, uh, get you an idea of some, like a picture of the geography as you read some of this account in the scripture. They start up in the land of Goshen and northeastern Egypt. They make their way down to Sinai. Uh, at some point, they cross the Red Sea. We've had that conversation before. We won't revisit that. But it takes them about three months to get down to Sinai. Uh, the Lord provides for them supernaturally over the course of those three months. He brings manna from heaven. He provides water in a very dry and thirsty land. They get down to Sinai, and they spend a, almost a year, 11 months and five days. If you compare the time that they left in Exodus 19.1 with uh, the time that they get ready to leave Sinai in Numbers 10.11, they come up with 11 months and five days. So after they do what they do in constructing the tabernacle and going through the book of Leviticus, they set out for the promised land. And they head up towards Kadesh Barnea. As I said, that leg of the journey is marked by complaining. I mean, they complain about the rigors of the desert, complain about only having manna to eat. They, uh, Miriam and Aaron rebel against Moses. 
And then finally, when they get to Kadesh Barnea, they send the spies up into the land. They come back and say, we can't do it. We can't take this land, even though the Lord had promised them that he would give it to them. So that's the last straw for that generation. They end up wandering in the wilderness. And we're not given great detail of where they went during these 38 years. But ultimately, that generation dies out. And then they end up back at Kadesh Barnea and make their way over to a city called Punan. They're asking the king of Edom at this point, hey, can we jump on the king's highway right here so we can zip right up to the promised land? And the king says, nope, I'm not letting you through. You know, a lot of people, you're not coming on my highway. So they end up having to go back down and skirting around the land of Edom at the Lord's direction. And they make their way up to the plains of Moab and they spend about a month there. Uh, and that's when Moses does what he does in the book of Deuteronomy. Any questions about any of that? Okay. The last thing that we'll look at this morning, we're going to finish early. Uh, this is what the tabernacle would have looked like. As you can see, it's quite portable. It could easily be taken down when the Lord uh, moved in the, either the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night. You can see the alt. Well, here's what the priest would have looked like in his garments and the breastplate of 12 stones. He would offer the sacrifices on the brazen altar that was outside the tabernacle. And then they would also wash the animals with this laver outside the tabernacle. Inside, there's two compartments, the holy place, and that would have the table of showbread, the altar of incense that was outside of the Holy of Holies, and the seven-stick candelabra. And then inside the Holy of Holies, only one person could go, and only once a year. Who was that? Chief High priest. And that this is the uh, Ark of the Covenant with a cherubim over that. This is where the presence of the Lord dwelt. Pretty incredible thing to think about. But this is where the, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night would be over that Ark of the Covenant. And again, the Levites were responsible for every time they got ready to move on, they packed this thing up. They were very careful about the way they carried the Ark of the Covenant. They moved and followed the cloud or pillar of fire until the next place that the Lord had for them. But the Lord's presence was, was with them through all of this. Now, this, of course, is going to be the forerunner to the temple that uh, Solomon ends up building. And it's basically the same furniture, the same uh, structure of the, uh, the temple with the two compartments on the inside. You do have some additional labors that they used to wash the animals with. But all those instructions were given uh, to Moses, and they built the tabernacle in the last section of Exodus in 35 through 40. Any questions about that? Again, our system of worship is nothing like this, right? But this was their system of worship. It's a big part of what the law described. And that, along with the calendar that the Lord had laid out with them, and those feasts as part of that calendar, the feasts were tied to where they were in the agricultural cycle for the, the calendar and also tied to the things that God had done for them in their history.
All right. So with that overview of the Old Testament as a whole, and with that overview of the first five books, we're ready now to start looking at individual books. And we're going to try to do one book per week. So obviously it's going to be at a very high level. But there's benefit to doing that. Uh, as we've said already, if, if there's a way that you can read through those books in preparation for each Sunday, that would be great. And sometimes it'll be easier than others. Uh, if you think Genesis is bad, wait till we get to Kings. Uh, but at least try to skim through it. And, you know, some of you are probably better skimmers than others. And some of you would rather not do that, read every word. I know each one of you have other demands on your time. But as much as you can, try to get a feel for the book as a whole. I think that'll help you as we get to our class. And you can either do it in preparation for that particular Sunday or after we go through it. And I know you've heard me say this before too, but there's things that you see in this kind of study and in reading through the Bible every year, if you can, that you won't see any other way. You just start to get familiar with the big picture of the plan of God, and, and that's very different from you know, the other ways that we study the Scripture. So uh, I really would encourage you in that. And it's a great study. I, this uh, survey class, I'd never done anything like this before I went to seminary, and we had to read through every book. We read through it three times. We had to write chapter titles for each chapter and major themes. It was the most, one of the most profitable classes for me in seminary. And it especially helped me to see how later revelation built on earlier revelation. And you just start getting a better feel for the whole plan of God that way. All right. Thank you for your attention. Uh, when, as we say at Georgia Power, give you back 15 minutes. And let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, just your willingness to give it to us in language that we understand. We thank you for the way that you illuminate us by your spirit as believers to understand your word and the flow of the progress of revelation. We thank you for the way that your word reveals your character and your plan. And even regardless of where saints have been in the course of history and in the course of your progress of revelation, you've given them what they've needed to, to know you and to walk before you. We live in a day now where we have the complete revelation of God all the way to the new heavens and new earth. We live in a very privileged time in that respect and in a location uh, in the world where we have your word easily accessible to us and in our own language with very good translations. We're grateful for all these things. And we just want to be appropriately committed to knowing your word, to faithfully read it, uh, to think about it, to recognize all the great things that you've done in the past, all that you're doing now through the church, and all that you're going to do, both for the church, Israel, and the nations in the future. Lord, help us. You put us in different places through the week. Help us to be faithful in wherever you put us and whatever we're doing. Help us to, um, as Andre pointed out, to love you with a whole heart and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we, we thank you for the time we've had to worship this morning. Go with us as we 
leave this place. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.